starting with Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Yeah. Therefore, the wicked would not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations of your inheritance, ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Take refuge in him. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And it's great to be here with you again. Um, As we um, turn to God's word, um, Psalms 1 and 2, I'll be focusing probably more on Psalm 1 than 2, nevertheless. Uh, Let's ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, John talked about spiritual disciplines that can help us when we feel spiritually dry. And he said that there there are three key disciplines. uh, He said three key disciplines are scripture, prayer, and fellowship, even as he reminded us, This morning. Now, these are also important for spiritual growth or spiritual formation. So, spiritual formation means growing more like Jesus. It means reflecting the family likeness as God's adopted children. And as John emphasized last week, spiritual formation is both God's work. And our work, God does his 100%, but we've got to do our 100% as well. God is working in us by his Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean we're passive. It's not a matter of let go and let God, so to speak. It requires effort from us. As Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but 
now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Paul also said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, keep on training yourself for godliness. The English word train is from the Greek word from which we get the word gymnasium, and we all know about the gym, don't we? So as Christians, we're always training in godliness. That's just a reminder of what John was uh, presenting to us last week. In his book titled Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life, David Taylor tells of a course on biblical spirituality he took as a Bible seminary student. His teacher was the pastor and author Eugene Peterson. While Taylor loved the class, he became increasingly frustrated because Peterson offered no practical advice. Then at the end of the very last class, Taylor asked Peterson if he could offer one piece of advice as to how students could realise Peter's vision, Peterson's vision, rather, of biblical spirituality. After a longish pause, Peterson said to Taylor something along these lines. Tomorrow, David, read Psalm 1. The next day, read Psalm 2. The day after, read Psalm 3. When you get to the end, start over. Thank you and good night. That was it. What did Taylor do in response to Peterson's advice? Well, he followed it exactly for several years and this is the impact it had on him. In time, I found that it slowly changed the way I saw my Christian faith. The language of the Psalms began to saturate my sense of self, my understanding of God, my ideas about prayer and worship, and my notion of scripture and a faithful life. We see, I believe that reading through the book of Psalms is essential to our spiritual formation. By reading the Psalms, we learn about God, ourselves, and life. The book of Psalms is also the prayer book of the Bible. So tip one, scripture reading, when you read a psalm. And then you can use the psalm as a prayer. Tip two. So it helps us to pray. It gives us words when we don't know what or how to pray. Ever been in a situation where you're struggling for words to pray? You might find that the Psalms readily fills that void, that gap where you're grasping 
for words that you just can't seem to lay your hands on. But God's given us his prayer book, the book of Psalms. Also gives us words of praise. Even when we don't feel like praising God. And that's a good thing to remember. Think of a psalm like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And as you start reminding yourself of what God has done for you, it can refresh you, it can revive you, it can fuel you in your praise of God. Anyway, let's have a look at Psalm 1 and 2, which are viewed together as the gateway to the book of Psalms. Now, I don't know if you noticed, they're tied together by an opening blessing in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And then you've got the closing blessing at the end of Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So throughout the Psalms, we understand the godly as those who delight themselves in the Lord. Psalm 1, verse 2, when you think about how the psalmist meditates on the word of God. And they also find refuge in the Lord or his anointed Psalm 2, verse 12. Now, Psalm 1 sets the tone for the whole book of Psalms. The godly are happy, but the wicked are condemned. The godly look forward to a blessed future, but the end of the wicked is grim. Psalm 1 doesn't talk about the messiness of life, does it? or the problems of suffering. Rather, it paints the ideal of the blessings that the godly enjoy. As one commentator has noted, Psalm 1's placement is important because it sets out the Lord's ideal person. And, of course, until the life and ministry of Jesus, it's clear that neither David nor any of his descendants was the Lord's ideal person. Later psalms, such as Psalm 3, 25, 32, 40, 41, show David as weak and fallen. He is weak because of his many enemies, as we find in Psalm 3, verse 1. He's fallen because of his sins and even because of his own rebelliousness, Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5. The godly are blessed when they have nothing to do with the wicked. They are blessed when they refuse to even listen to the wicked because if they listened, that would be on a slippery slope for them and they would end up joining the wicked to mock and even mistreat the righteous, innocent, weak and vulnerable. Just pause for a moment and think about all the conversations you have or overhear at work or the things you watch on television or social media. We constantly hear 
worldly messages that appeal to our selfish desires and self-centeredness. And it's easy to let them shape our attitudes and actions. Just think of the ratio of worldly messages we hear every day to what we hear from God through his word. That really just shows how vital it is for us to read God's word daily. Instead of listening to the wicked, the righteous listen to God. They are blessed when they delight in the law or instruction of the Lord, and they meditate on it all the time. Meditation on the word of God is another spiritual discipline that helps us grow more like Jesus. To meditate on the word is to take to take time to think about a verse or passage of the Bible so that its truth can sink deeply into our being. In verse 2 of chapter of Psalm 1, the Hebrew word translated meditate actually involves speaking the words aloud or reciting them gently. So there's a vocalization. It's just it's not silent meditation. There's a vocalization there. According to the book of Psalms, the spiritual discipline of meditation starts with memorize, memorizing God's instruction so that you're able to recall it and think about it. To hide God's word in your heart, you must fully understand it. Then you can talk to God about the word, turning its ideas and concerns into prayer. Lastly, meditation ends with self-talk. It could be self-rebuke, self-examination, self-exhortation or self-encouragement. We saw that last week in the psalm that uh, John uh, preached from, Psalm 42, verse 5 and 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? You see, they're questions of self-examination. Put your hope in God. There's an exhortation. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And as we read through that psalm last week, you notice that he didn't say it to himself once. He had to repeat it. And sometimes we need that. It's not a, I'll just say it to myself once and I'll snap out of this spiritual dryness. It doesn't work like that. In fact, if you read Psalm 42 and 43 together, as is often regarded as being one psalm, the very last verse of Psalm 43, verse 5, are the same words in verse 5 and 11 of Psalm 42. Sometimes we've just got to keep talking to ourselves from God's word to encourage ourselves and to recover that spiritual refreshment that we long for. So there are two benefits from this meditation, that is, this meditating on God's word. 
It stops us from being caught up in worldly messages. That's the first benefit. And it gets us thinking godly thoughts, the type of thoughts that Paul encourages in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. The blessing that comes to us from meditating on God's word is painted in the wonderful word picture in verse 3. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This picture involves two important points. First thing, the tree is transplanted. It's been transferred from one place to a new place where it will grow well and bear fruit. It's implied that the Lord is the one who transplanted the tree. Second, the favourable location includes access to a never-ending supply of water. And therefore, it's a picture of flourishing. I think there are echoes of these thoughts of transfer and flourishing in the New Testament. We see transfer when Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 13, God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves. You see, we've been transferred. We've been transplanted. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we've been transferred to that kingdom of life, the kingdom of Jesus, the Son, and God the Father loves. God the Father has transferred us from the oppressive rule of the devil that leads to eternal death to the kingdom of Jesus, his Son, who gives us eternal life. We see flourishing when Paul writes about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Because it's through the Holy Spirit living in us that Christians produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And because we have the Holy Spirit, he will sustain us even in times of trials. Through the word of God, which is living and active, Hebrews 4, verse 12. In stark contrast to the resilient and fruitful tree, the wicked are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Chaff is the dry outer husk of wheat, and it is used here to mean worthless rubbish. The wicked have no substance. They will have no defence when the final day of judgment comes. They will not join the godly. They will perish. In contrast, when the day of judgment comes, the godly will stand secure. 
and they will do so because the Lord watches over their way. The Lord plants, transplants, and waters and watches. He has an intimate knowledge of the godly. He cares about them, and therefore they will be eternally blessed. Now we turn briefly to Psalm 2, which focuses on the Lord and his anointed one. It may well be that this anointed one is the ideal person described in Psalm 1, since it immediately follows Psalm 1. After all, the kings of Israel were expected to devote themselves to the word of God, as is made clear in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20 especially verses 18 to 20. It was, so to speak, in their statement of duties. The king was to write out God's word, read it, and obey it. And if he did that, he would revere the Lord, be humble, and reign for a long time. Psalm 2 identifies the problem of the nations who conspire to rebel against the rule of the Lord and his anointed one. The rebellious nations and rulers are the wicked. In Psalm 1 verse 2, the godly person meditates on and recites the Lord's instruction. However, in Psalm 2 verse 1, the peoples plot evil, perhaps through talking about their rebellious plan. You see, it's the same Hebrew word in both verses. Criminals who conspire often talk in whispers. In Psalm 1, the wicked were seated while they were mocking the godly. But in here in Psalm 2 verse 4, the tables are turned. The Lord is seated on his throne while he laughs at the nations and rulers and their useless plot. In Psalm 1, verses 2 to 3, life and fruitfulness are obtained by meditating on God's word. Here in Psalm 2, verse 12, life is linked with the command to submit to the Lord's anointed <coughs> People who don't submit to his kingship will perish for their way, just as the wicked will perish for their way in Psalm 1, verse 6. It's the same Hebrew verb for perish in both Psalms. You see, the blessedness or happiness expressed in Psalm 2, verse 12, extends to all who take refuge in him. This happiness is open, not just to the Israelites, but to people from all the nations, people like you and me. This theme of finding refuge in God is a significant one in the book of Psalms. Just think of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. Or Psalm 18. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. A refuge is a place of security, isn't it, and protection, isn't it? And there are times when we need that. 
absolutely need. In the book of Psalms, that's a major theme, God being our refuge. Psalm 34, verse 8, goes something on this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Reiterating that thought, God being a refuge. We all know life is messy. And the book of Psalms consists of prayers and praises that cover all our experiences the joyful times, good times, tough times, sad times, spiritually dry times, dark times, dangerous times. The Psalms also focus our hearts and minds on God and his anointed, who, as we know from the New Testament, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalms like Psalm 2. How often is Psalm 2 quoted in the New Testament? You might want to think, go through your New Testament briefly or look up some sort of reference Bible and just see how often Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament in connection with the Lord Jesus. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, and Psalm 118. And words from the Psalms were often on the lips of Jesus himself. So what can we take away from Psalms 1 and 2? So the aim of spiritual formation is for for us to become more like Jesus. And like him, we should become familiar with the Psalms and pray them. The Psalms also help us develop the spiritual disciplines of reading scripture and meditation. When we are feeling spiritually dry, it is good for us to turn to psalms like Psalm 42 or maybe Psalm 61, 63, 1, yes. And it's good to turn them in, turn them into prayer. We could even memorize those psalms. It's good for us to do what Eugene Peterson told his student David Taylor. Tomorrow, David. Read Psalm 1. The next day, read Psalm 2. The day after, read Psalm 3. When you get to the end, start over. There's a Psalms blogger called Salter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, with a reference to the book of Psalms, Salter Mark, whose motto is, a psalm a day helps you work, rest and pray. So let's all read a psalm a day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Psalms, which helps us to know you better and gives us words to pray in all circumstances of life. We long to be the blessed person who does not listen to the ungodly, but rather meditates on your word at all times, so that our thoughts, attitudes and actions are shaped by your word rather than worldly thoughts and values. May the Holy Spirit take your word and sink it deep into our hearts so that we become more like, more conformed to the likeness of your anointed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our refuge and through whom we are forever blessed. Amen.
All right. There you go. We've got a few questions on there already. Um, before we start, can I ask how you got into the Psalms? Like, why why have the Psalms like spoken to you so much? I suppose because um, it does what I <clears throat> said. Um, it addresses all the circumstances of life, and sometimes it just gives me the words I need. Um, like when we're going through COVID, remember we emerged from COVID and I think last year you asked me um, uh, 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 to share a reflection or something and I think I referred to Psalm 57 because I felt like a cave dweller. And uh, that psalm refers to the time when David was in the cave and Saul was very close nearby. And... Um, I felt like that during COVID. I don't know if you guys did too, but uh, I certainly felt like that. It was nice to emerge out of that sort of situation. And, of course, uh, very early in the piece, um, Psalm 46 just seemed to be so apt, um, you know, when COVID first struck. You know, this is a, a pandemic that we hadn't had for 100 years, you know, God is our refuge and strength, and those words just yeah. seem to come at the appropriate time. Yeah, just kind of cuts across into whatever's what happening. All, all right, let's jump into the questions. Um, first one, should we pray Psalms word by word? <clears throat> I think it depends. You can, and I, I don't think there's a hard and false rule on that. I mean... Some sometimes are easily just you can pray. Mm. So you, others perhaps don't may not lend themselves as such because of the particular circumstances. Of the do do you find there's a there is a benefit from praying Psalms word by word as opposed to well, I don't know how you pray them not by, word by word, but um, I think by going through the Psalms it can probably help to shape your thinking. Um, so you may appropriate the words, but the thing there is you're being uh you're engaging with the words. I think that's the key thing. You're engaging with the words. And they are prayers. I think that's part of the attraction too, is they these are words from people to God that uh have been it's not God's word to us. It is and it isn't, if you know what I mean. It's our words to God, and they're in Scripture, and they're for our benefit, um, and they're a wonderful and they're a wonderful God. I guess the Psalms are a bit unique in that, like all of Scripture is God's word to us, but these yes. are the only part that's kind of our words to God. Yeah, hmm. in such a concentrated and very full way. Hmm. It's interesting. I haven't thought about that before. Um, the next question, why is it so hard to meditate? Um, why is it so hard to meditate about God's word? Meditate on God's word. That's, that's a good question. And, um, I think there are a number of reasons, aren't there? One could offer, um, it takes effort. Doesn't it? It's like anything. It it uh, it takes it takes effort. Um, so when you're 
Uh, if any of you have studied a new language, have had to study a language, um, you've got to use that memory muscle. <laughs> There's no escaping it. Uh, no matter how gifted you are, you've got to use memory muscle. And, you know, uh, it takes effort. I, I can't put it any harder than, uh, higher than that. <laughs> Therefore, because it takes effort, our natural inclination, um, I think, not, not all of us, I can't speak for everyone, but our, nat- our natural inclination is to take the easy path and, rather than the hard effort path. It's probably very true. It's very true for me, at least. Um, last question. Do you have any particular practices uh, for the Psalms? I found that um, for me the best thing was to basically just go through them sequentially, although sometimes I might, you know, focus on a particular psalm that, that I thought, oh, I haven't really thought about that and delved into it this way. But I like the idea of going through them sequentially because often it confronts us with things that we don't think about or perhaps we find jarring, like the imprecatory psalms, the psalms where, you know, the psalmist is asking God to bring his judgment on his enemies. How does that fit with us loving our enemies? Does there seem to be a disconnect there? Um, But when you think deeply about it, you think, hang on a minute, he's he's not asking for vengeance. He's leaving that matter to God. So, you know, I think sometimes, uh, I think sometimes uh, we can sort of frame God within our own particular thinking, whereas if you go through the book of Psalms, it kind of stretches you and think, hang on a minute, God's... I can't domesticate him, like Aslan, you know. He's good, but he's not safe. Um, and therefore, I need to start thinking God's thoughts, God's ways, and our things. So it's kind of like reading through them and then like letting them point out inconsistencies in how you're thinking versus how God thinks or something like that. <laughs> cool. Let's, I'll just refresh and see if there's any final questions. Oh, there is? Okay. Let's see. When is it right to seek vengeance yeah. when is... against the wicked in that case? <clears throat> well, I, I was I, I, an example I think is, and I'm not talking about us taking vengeance, you know, because um, it's pretty clear from Scripture that it, we leave that to God. God is the judge. But I, I was thinking of uh, a tangible uh, instance was with the uh, Islamic State people, you know, when there were particular atrocities that were being committed, uh, praying that God would do his work and if it pleased him to save them, okay, Pretty, that sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it, you know, when you think of some of the wicked things that they've done. But we mustn't forget the Apostle Paul was himself 
a terrorist. Um, he hauled away Christians to their death. You can read it in scripture. And God did a wonderful work and transformed him. But if God doesn't do that transforming work, then condemnation is an appropriate judgment. But that's God, up to God. It's not up to me. So it, is it more like you're leaving vengeance to God as opposed yes. to seeking it yourself? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, because... It's not my place. Um, if I've if I've escaped condemnation because of God's mercy, yeah. um, then it's up to mm. up to God. I think. But I want the judge of the earth to do right, and I know He will. That's what the psalmist prays. If you yeah. go through some of the psalms, particularly in the nineties, where the Lord reigns, and one of the big issues is we want justice. And we know that there's a lot of injustices in the world. And we're looking, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm looking forward to the day when the Jesus comes back and he's going to set all those injustices right. Um, so it's in that context, I suppose, I'm looking, you know, for God's just judgment. Um, maybe in addition to that question, with your background as a lawyer, I don't know if you thought about this before, but with your background as a lawyer, how does um, seeking justice in courts and things like that, come, or, or I guess is that ju- is justice and vengeance different? But how does seeking justice in courts match with leaving vengeance to God? Well, the thing about um, well, even in even in Israel's day, you had punishments meted out, didn't you? Uh, punishments that fitted the crime because of the, uh, I mean. God did it because of uh, he was the ruler over his people. But I think it sets the template too for us in terms of loving our neighbour, acting justly and mercifully. And if we offend, then punishment is warranted. Um, So I I see that there's a connection. Yeah, right. So it's like the pattern of God. Uh, punishing and taking vengeance on wrongdoing yes. is like the same pattern that we have, thankfully, in our court system yes. where we try and do that as much as we can. But not all of it's going to be. Yeah. And, look, I'm the first to admit that uh, we've got a, a court system that's very imperfect because it's made up of imperfect people. And sometimes the wicked get off and sometimes the innocent get unjustly punished. Hopefully that's exceptional, but I'm just saying it happens. Um, and uh, but um, it's better to I think it's better to have some system of order as we have in our society than lawlessness. That's the worst. Thing. Cool. Thanks for that, Andrew.